This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, as always, to be here with you today. Coming up later in this episode, I'm going to be answering a reader question. The first reader question of 2024, obviously, uh, but also the first reader question that I have answered in quite some time. So I am looking forward to doing so, and please Please remember, if you have a question that you would like to hear me answer on the air and read your name along with it, hit me with an email at Gwen, G-W-E-N, at Gwen Cooper, G-W-E-N-C-O-O-P-E-R dot com, or you can just visit my website, GwenCooper.com, and there is a contact form there that you can utilize to go ahead and send me whatever questions you may have. So... Yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. So this has been kind of a crazy week. And I don't know how many of you are have heard about this or or have read about this. Um, but one of the, the big stories of the week that I've been hearing about endlessly from people who know me and and from readers um, is Jonathan Franzen's article in The New Yorker, uh, basically against the no-kill movement, arguing that no-kill is actually worse for cats and dogs. Um, those of you who are not, well, we'll, we'll talk about Jonathan Franz in, in a moment, uh, but this is essentially the argument and also that, that no-kill shelters, they warehouse animals, um, that they only take the most attractive or adoptable animals from open intake shelters from animal care and control and, and organizations like that, that they operate at the expense of open intake shelters that take in all cats and dogs, regardless of the condition that they're in or their adoptability, and that they will keep animals for years and giving the animals a very poor quality of life. If no one steps forward to adopt the cat or dog, um, giving the, the animals a very poor quality of life while not moving them through the system in order to make room for new cats and dogs to come into the no-kill shelter. Although simultaneously, the other argument that I have heard is that no-kill shelters in their haste to maintain their no-kill status while not overflowing with cats and dogs will simply kind of throw them out there to anybody, to, to any askers, essentially, without doing any due diligence or background checks to make sure that the cat or dog in question is going to a good home. So these are all of, of the allegations that are being thrown at the no-kill movement. And basically that, that those of us who support it are idealistic, perhaps at best, um, ill-intentioned at worst, and really not doing anything beneficial for the animals. Um, the argument further goes on, by the way, that releasing feral cats, you know, TNR programs that put feral cats back on the street are cruel to the cats and destructive of natural habitats 
because of all the birds that the cats kill, um, in addition to other types of, of rodents and wildlife and so on and so forth, uh, many and various claims. Um, like I said, we'll, we'll get back to Jonathan Franzen in a moment. I have not read this particular article yet. Um, and so in summing up, I, I have read some other articles about the article. I'm also very familiar with Jonathan Franzen's position on cats in particular and no kill. Uh, basically in the article that he has written, my understanding is that he sort cites PETA quite a bit. That's people for the ethical treatment of animals. Um, PETA who is adamantly opposed to no kill shelters. Um, and this is one of the issues that I have with PETA, by the way. Um, they, they are very much opposed to no kill shelters and to the no kill movement. And if you read PETA literature about no kill shelters, you will see they they have extraordinarily negative things to say, but but most they will repeat most of the arguments that I just made. Um, in addition, in which they paint a really dreadful picture of what life inside no kill shelters is like for the animals unfortunate enough to find themselves living there. So, you know, one of the first things I'll say is is the one thing that I will agree with Peta and you know, by extension, let's say Jonathan Franzen on, is that open in intake shelters do get a bad rap. Obviously, it is incredibly sad that so many animals are euthanized here in the United States. So many thousands of animals are euthanized every day, millions every year. And that can make it very difficult to be a volunteer or a worker in an open intake shelter if you care about animals. Uh, but it is, of course, important to remember that most of the people who work and volunteer in open intake shelters do care a lot about the animals. They, they're not working there for the opportunity to get to euthanize as many cats and dogs as possible. They are doing important work. They do it oftentimes with a lot less support than no-kill no shelters get because no-kill is just a happier idea. And it's an easier place for most of us to spend time. It feels good to give our money. So people who work at open intake shelters have much have far fewer resources usually, and do really emotionally difficult and draining work. And and to the people who volunteer and work at open intake shelters, I could not do what you do. And I, I also really couldn't do what people who work at no-kill shelters, by the way, you know, do either. I am essentially useless, except insofar as I am committed to making noise and, and helping raise money and having worked in nonprofit myself. I do know how important that people like that are and, and what a big part of, you know, what an important part of the overall ecosystem fundraisers can be. But at the end of the day, I am not a frontline person. I have mad respect for the frontline volunteers and workers, whether you work no kill or open intake. And all my empathy goes to people who work in open intake shelters and who do the best that they can and who are continually in the position of having to say goodbye to animals who they came to care for and rallied for. And yeah, they deserve recognition. Absolutely. Having said that, I, I don't understand what PETA's problem with no-kill shelters 
is. I understand the arguments that they make, and I'm sure there are some shelters out there that are poorly run, where animals live unhappy lives, uh, you know, knee-deep in their own waste, languishing for years in cages when it would have been a mercy to put them to sleep years ago. I'm sure that somewhere in America, there is at least one shelter that meets that description because... There are bad people in every field of endeavor. There there are people with bad intentions, even in the fields and the endeavors where you that you would think would only attract good-hearted people. Just like we know, right, there are there are evil doctors and nurses. There there are people who work in, in caring professions who actually try to hurt to hurt people. There are writers who plagiarize. There are accountants who embezzle. We we could go on and on in this vein. Like I said, any place where there are people doing stuff, at least one of those people is doing stuff he shouldn't be doing. No question about it. What I don't understand is why PETA is so is so wedded to the notion of of finding this these needles in the haystack, this handful of bad actors and blazing forth their stories as if they were typical of no-kill shelters and the no-kill movement. Um, I have been to so many no-kill shelters and to open intake shelters, by the way, over the course of my career, uh, since Homer's Odyssey was published basically, and the the thrust of my career became about supporting animal rescue. I, I've been to so many no-kill shelters over the years. And unless all of the, the staff and volunteers at these shelters were just the greatest actors and actresses I've ever seen who put on one hell of a show on the days when I happened to be there. Obviously, most of the no-kill shelters that I personally visited um, are, first of all, many of them, most of them have animals who are there long-term because they require long-term care and are not great candidates for adoption. I also have been to many, many no-kill shelters that have made a point of pulling from a, you know, animal care and control, animals who are blind or, as in Clayton's case, only, you know, are missing limbs, cats with cerebellar hypoplasia, cats who are paralyzed from the waist down and need to have their, their bowels expressed every day. I, so I, I've seen so many no-kill volunteers and staff members working with cats who would seem to represent hopeless cases, except they aren't hopeless. And in so many of those cases, those animals do go on to find wonderful homes. Now, you could try to make the argument that it isn't worth it to expend resources on animals who have such poor odds of survival or of adoption when there are so many more healthy animals who probably would be adopted more easily and who end up in gas chambers in open intake shelters or who end up being euthanized and in open intake shelters. But then I think you're really making a different argument. Then your argument is not that no-kill shelters don't care for animals or that they only pull the most adoptable ones in order to maintain their no-kill status. Um, Then you're saying that they're expending too many resources on caring too much for animals that have too small a chance. And whether or not that's a worthwhile use of resources, I think is an entirely separate argument. And by the way, I'm sure you can infer where I stand on that particular issue. So yeah, but getting back to the point, I don't understand why this chaps Pete's ass so much, why the idea of no-kill bothers them so much. My feeling, my suspicion is that Pete, at the end of the day really does not think that that animals should be living with humans in the first place, that there should not be domestication of animals, at least not to be companions 
to humans. And so that that's the best that I can come up with because they aren't deliberately misrepresenting and obfuscating the issue. So it's not really an intellectually honest argument that they are having when it comes to no-kill shelters. Again, I am not disputing, I have no doubt that there are any number of of evil, poorly run no-kill shelters out there. Um, I, But in my extensive and considerable experience, they certainly are not anything even close to being a majority. Not to mention, by the way, that the idea that no-kill shelters just kind of throw their charges, throw the cats and dogs they take care of out there into the arms of of the first takers who wander into the, through their doors is so absurd. If anything, what I typically hear when it comes to no-kill shelters is the opposite argument, that they are so careful and so particular about whom they will allow their animals to, to be adopted out to, that it's almost impossible at certain shelters to to adopt a cat or a dog from them. I have heard from people who have been unable to adopt a dog from a no-kill shelter because they and their partner both work outside of the home and the shelter insists that the dog can only go to a home with a, with a stay-at-home dog guardian I didn't even grow up with a stay-at-home mother always in the house. So um, I I really am not of the opinion that a dog needs to have a mom or a dad hanging out with him all day long. And I will also say having adopted cats both from no-kill rescue organizations and from open intake, um, open intake typically has the the less rigorous adoption procedure. In my case, they they did call my references, and and it all happened while I was standing there. It was a, a while you wait kind of a situation, um, and which makes sense that they would be less particular because again, the animals in their care face certain euthanization if they are not adopted in a timely fashion. And so you don't want to put a a cat or a dog into the hands of a known abuser, but you also, you can't be too precious about it. You don't have time to make home visits or to to insist that there be a stay-at-home cat or dog guardian to remain with, you know, home with the animal uh, on the typical day. Anyway, and and that's just common sense. So again, I'm not really sure what, what PETA's dog in this fight is, if you will pardon the expression. Um, Jonathan Franzen, on the other hand, has a he has a long standing and well-known fondness for birds and for bird watching, and is absolutely one of those people who believes that you you sort of you can't like the cats and the birds at the same time. And he's been quoted in any number of publications and articles over the years and, and in some of the books that he has written. Basically talking about how cats decimate the bird population, uh, which is, of course, a buzzkill if you are a person who likes to watch birds. Um, this is a whole the, – the number of, of birds that cats allegedly kill in any given year is a whole separate argument. And Jackson Galaxy a few years ago uh, published a really wonderful takedown that, that was based on empirical da- data, um, essentially showing why the sketchy data that's been presented by those who claim that cats are killing billions of birds every year is specious and almost certainly – inaccurate. Uh, as as Mark Twain once noted, there are three kinds of lies, right? There's lies, damned lies, and statistics. 
So I would encourage you on your own to to go kind of look for that. Um, for those of you who don't know who Jonathan Franzen is, by the way, Jonathan Franzen is a famous American novelist. Um, his first, it wasn't his first book, it was his third novel, but his first big breakout book was a novel called The Corrections, which was published back at the turn of the millennium. Um, Jonathan Franzen has a couple of claims to fame, but one of them is that Oprah Winfrey, and this is when Oprah was still on the air, wanted the corrections to be her, to make the corrections her pick, her Oprah book club pick. And at the time, and, and really continuing until today, within the publishing industry, there there is probably nothing else that is a 100% guarantee, not just that a book is going to be a bestseller, but that it's going to be a mega bestseller than having Oprah choose your book for Oprah's book club. If Oprah chooses your book for Oprah's book club, you may as well start uh, start shopping for your second home. Um, and Jonathan Franzen's claim to fame is that Oprah wanted to make the corrections an Oprah book club pick, and he turned her down. He would not allow her to do so. You know, basically, I think he did not like to think of his book as being a book that that would be of interest to the unwashed masses. Um, I, I think that's essentially what it boiled down to is it was a certain amount of intellectual snobbery. I can only imagine the the heart attacks and strokes and various other forms of conniption that the people who work at his publisher, his editor, his marketing team, and so on and so forth must have had when he turned Oprah down. Although, of course, he did get a lot of publicity for turning Oprah down and, and the corrections was still a mega bestseller. And in fairness, I should say, having read the corrections that that I think it is truly in an, an, an outstanding novel um probably one of the best that I have read I think it's probably the best thing that Jonathan Franzen has done although I have not read his most recent book but uh, you know some like 10 or 15 years after the corrections he published a novel called Freedom a great big doorstopper of a novel that I read over the course of 3 days during jury duty basically sitting in the jury selection room never getting picked to go sit on a panel. And so I had, you know, eight hours a day over the course of three days to just sit there and read a big-ass novel. And that's what I did. And Freedom is the Jonathan Franzen novel in which one of the characters is very into birdwatching. And so you get a lot of that character mouthing Jonathan Franzen, the author's philosophy on feral cats and why there should not be feral cats and why there are too many cats in general. And uh, by the way, my, my the point of this is not to get you to hate Jonathan Friends. And again, I think he's a tremendously talented writer. And there is more to him than I mean, not even just his writing, but to him as a human being than his feelings on cats and birds. Um, but I will say that that Jonathan Franzen and PETA are not exactly disinterested parties, merely reporting the facts as they see them when it comes to this particular issue. Um, I understand Jonathan Franzen's deal as a guy who's into the birds. I, again, I, I don't fully understand why PETA is so adamant that there should not be a no-kill movement, that we should be euthanizing animals in shelters. I think even most of the people who work open intake would agree that that it would be a lovely dream if we could get to a point as a country where we truly were a no-kill 
nation and where there was no need for open intake shelters, um, that through spaying and neutering and conscientious animal guardianship and an abundance of people who are willing to adopt animals from shelters rather than buying them from breeders, if all of these forces came together and created a situation where there were just enough cats and dogs for people who want those cats and dogs, with a small overage being, you know, living in no-kill shelters until people can adopt them, I think everyone would agree that that would be a lovely dream. Now, whether or not we will ever get to that promised land is, of course, an open question. And the realistic answer is we will probably never fully get there. But I think it's a goal to keep working toward and to get as close to it as we can. And again, I think even people who work in open intake shelters would agree that it would be a dream not to have to euthanize so many cats and dogs or any, if that were possible. So yeah, I don't get it. Um, but I am going to look around and see if I can find, I'm going to read this article. I only have not read it yet because, you know, it's the fr- it's been the first week of the year, man. And, uh, there's enough to be anxious and stressed out about as the new year begins. And I did not want to jump right into 2024 with my blood a boil, uh, because I'm sure as I read this article, I'm going to be reading it angrily. Um, my, my, my poor long suffering husband is probably going to hear a lot of, of the vitriol that I'm feeling as I read the article. I would try to spare it. I will try to spare you guys. Um, but I am going to read the article and I'm also going to look around for somebody from a no kill shelter, a spokesperson from a no kill shelter who can kind of repudiate what the article is saying or or give the counter argument to us. I considered the idea of trying to get a representative from PETA and also somebody from a no-kill shelter or a representative of the no-kill movement to to kind of point, counterpoint the issue. It's not a format that I've yet tried on this podcast, but Perhaps I will do that as well. I'm I'm a little bit afraid that, you know, with my thumb on the scale for the no-kill movement, I might make a hostile host and I would not want to invite anyone on the onto my podcast for the sake of of tearing them to shreds or seeing somebody else tear them to shreds. So I'm gonna think that through, but this is an issue that we are going to continue to discuss as the weeks and months roll out ahead of us. And in a moment, we are going to take a break before getting to the reader question part of the podcast. But before I do that, I I have been remiss the last few months in acknowledging my Patreon supporters on my podcast. And that is a mistake that I intend to correct right now. Um so I'm going to be talking a little bit in the next part of the podcast about upcoming projects and, and things that I have going on for this year. But I do want to to thank my Patreon supporters. For those of you who are not familiar with Patreon, um, it's like the word patron with an E on it. And Patreon is a platform that allows people to become basically micro patrons of creators or artists whose work they enjoy. So the idea that the once upon a time, you know, most of us learned in, in history class about the Medici's who underwrote the work of people like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, they were patrons of the, and so many other artists. And this used to be the model for painters, also for authors. It wasn't about trying to sell your work to the public. It was about having patrons who underwrote, who paid your expenses while you created that work so that you could just focus on your art 
while your patrons made sure that you had enough money to pay your living expenses. A, a lovely model, nice work if you can get it, as the saying goes. Uh, Patreon basically allows modern day people to do the same thing for artists that they like, but on a micro level. So no one's asking you to assume the entire care and feeding of a YouTube creator or an author or somebody or a painter or whoever it is you're supporting. You get to be a micro patron. Um, in the case of my Patreon community, you can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. So basically for the price of a cup of coffee, if you're willing to buy me a cup of coffee that once a month, then you can be a patron. And you also get a cool stuff or access to cool stuff, um, exclusive perks, let's say, as a patron. There are different levels of patronage and there are different rewards that come with them. One of them is having your is hearing your name announced on the podcast. There's also bonus content. I do a lot of contests, uh, patron-only contests, where I will ask trivia questions from one of my books, and the winner will get merch from the Homer's Merch Store. And because I love to bake, they will get something from me that I have baked from scratch. Um, cookies, brownies. I did a great um, onion cheese bread during the holidays, which is so crazy addictive. I only make it at the holidays because otherwise I would I would truly do nothing but eat this onion cheese bread all day, every day until I looked like a What's that? The name of that kid in in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory who uh, you know just she's greeny and and she turns into a giant blueberry. I think anyway, that would be me. I would be round as that girl. So fun stuff like that. Also free books. You get your name and your cat's name included in all of my books that are published while you are one of my patrons. If you would like to learn more about it, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash Gwen Cooper. That's all one word. And Patreon is spelled P as in Peter, A, T as in Thomas, R as in Robert, E, O, N as in Nancy, patreon.com slash Gwen Cooper. Please check it out. Um, literally nothing that I'm doing now, including this podcast and the new books that I'm publishing and the reissues of Homer's Odyssey and Love Saves the Day, none of that would be possible without my patrons. And I am now going to thank them by name. If you are one of my patrons at the $5 level or higher, and I do not say your name today, it's because the list is too long, and so I'm going to break it into a few sections and do it over the course of the next several podcasts. So if you do not hear your name today, you will hear your name either next week or the week after. And with that having been said, and also please forgive me if I mispronounce your name, and please send me an email correcting me. Um, with no further ado, I would like to thank the following patrons for their incredibly generous support. Jane Gobi. Rarity, Nancy Nickel, Scott Keister, Jane Broyles, Diane Abba, Lola Whitehead, Andrea Sachs, Teresa Pesky, Candy, Mikhail Wilson, Joe Grubbs, Lee Ann Gilliam, Veronica Lynn Dickey, Marilyn Love, Susie Much, Beth Kirby, Julie Kennedy, Wanda, David Nagreski, J. Eric Hone, Tracy Ganane, Madeline Monk, Vanessa, sorry, Vanessa Ramirez, Patricia Prudence Patelski. Love the, uh, the alliteration, Patricia. Janice Rogensky, Cami Tressler, 
Giselle Baxter, Julie Lowe, Annalie Evans, Cindy Settle, Nina Mercer, Anne Tetmeyer, Dawn Cole, Ronald Coltnow, Allison Amsterdam, Christina DeSalvo, Ken Kistner, Meg Gallipalt, Emily Stafford, Sarah Hikes, Kathy Schlichternlein, Margaret Ald Louie, Stephanie Peters, Heather Hambrick, Eileen Kaiser, L. Shannon Carter, Zoe Shino, Catherine Birch, and Susan Ann Cadlack. Again, if you did not hear your name today, um, you will hear it next week or the week after that. But truly, thank you so, so much to my incredible patrons for your incredible support. I literally, literally could not do this without you. And with that, we are going to take a brief break of about 30 seconds or so. And when we come back, we will be answering this week's reader question. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, and stick around for more Curl Up With a Cattail. for sticking around. Uh, Today's reader question comes from reader Amanda Clement. Amanda, thanks so much for writing. And Amanda wants to know, um, happy 2024. I was hoping that on your next podcast, you could talk a little bit about any projects or plans, especially any books that might be upcoming in 2024. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Amanda, for asking. Yeah, so, and and that's why Patreon was, was such a good lead up into this. Um, those of you who have been listening to my podcast for a while know that thanks to my Patreon supporters, I've been taking a lot of continuing education classes and sorts of things that are helpful when you're running your own business, which I am now doing, um, but that I did not take when I was in college as a creative writing major. And so just like a lot of marketing classes, advertising classes, um, statistical analysis courses that just help me get a better grip on what which of of my ad and marketing efforts are producing the greatest return on investment or ROI as we say in the biz. Um so I've been doing a lot of that this year I think it's going to be a little bit less emphasis on education which I've really been heavily focusing on for the last 2 years and so this year now I I really want to focus on two things. Um, which is making Homer's Odyssey in the UK and Love Saves the Day everywhere as successful as I can possibly make them. And that's going to be in large part due to my taking, coalescing everything that I've learned in all these classes over the last couple of years and and really digging into the marketing efforts for Homer's Odyssey and Love Saves the Day. Um, I also am working on, I'm hoping to get out at least two new books. Actually, and before that, I should say, I also, before I get into those books, um, my shortest immediate goal is that by February 14th, Valentine's Day, the new story about prudence for the new edition of Love Saves the Day is finalized. And in that version of the book, 
Um, Much like the cat, Scarlet, who inspired Prudence, uh, Prudence does not always come when she is called, uh, by which I mean I've had to write several drafts of this story and and, and to get – to get to a story, but also to get to to get back to Prudence's voice, basically, and to get to a story that I like for her and for her family that we left her with, Laura and Josh and, and the baby that Laura was going to have at the end of Love Saves the Day. I hope that's not a spoiler for anybody who has not read the book. It's, it's really not a spoiler. There's much that happens in the plot. This little thing is actually not a spoiler. But anyway, so... That is the immediate first thing I want to work on. And then there are two books that I am hoping to get out um, this year. Uh, The second book is called The Best Little Cat House in Jersey. And I've been working on that for a while. And that is a a book. It's going to be similar to My Life in a Cat House for those of you who have read My Life in a Cat House. Um, in, in that it's going to be a memoir in stories. But I envision these being more stories and shorter in length then the stories or the essays that are in my life in a cat house. So that is something that I've been working on. And I'm looking at that for maybe holiday season 2024 or fall 2024. Um, what I am hoping to have done by summer of 2024, the, the next immediate thing that I'll be working on um, starting in mid-February is the first Homer whodunit novel, You Only Live Nine Times. So many of you have been asking about that for so long. I will admit candidly that I have been very intimidated about even starting to write this novel because I have never written anything even remotely like a mystery novel. I have read many mystery novels. Um, I I am a huge, I, I especially particularly love, you know, noir kind of crime novels, this is not going to be that. This is going to be more of a cozy mystery. I have read also many cozy mystery novels. So, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, there are people who devour those novels and who really are just experts in in intuitively understanding how those stories work and how those novels are put together. I don't think I have read enough of them to fall into that category. And so honestly, part of the, de- I mean, part of the delay is that I've had other things that I've had to work on and, and things that I have to, I, you know, for my business to be a business, it, it has to be a business. I, I, I realize that I probably could win awards for vagueness with that statement. But what I mean is, you know, traditionally I've written books and then publishers, they, they take care of the business end of publishing them. Now I am fully self-publishing. I am fully an independent author. And so there have been, it's not even just learning about the marketing and and promotions aspect, although that in and of itself really has been a tremendous challenge and, and just a tremendous amount of work. And I really, I really do feel like the last couple of years, um, it's, it's almost like I, I've been in college again. I don't even know if it's right to say all, I mean, the only difference really has been that I'm not working toward a degree, but I am in a constant state of doing coursework and, and, and like I said, continuing my education, some of it with official online courses and a lot of it just with YouTube tutorials and things like that. But it really has been a self-education process. And I just have all these notebooks and and agendas and self-quizzes and all kinds of, of material that has been accumulating in my desk over, it really does look like the desk of a student at this point. So 
that has been the you know now it really is time to start putting the the, the principle into practice, um, which I have been a little bit nervous about doing. I've been both nervous about working on the new projects and also nervous about really jumping in and officially marketing them. And I've sort of been hedging my bets, you know, with focus on things like Homer's Odyssey and Love Saves the Day, which are known quantities with known audiences um, or known types of readers. And and now I'm going to be bridging out and everything is going to be new. And I'm going to be doing all of this really on my own. I mean, I, I have wonderful freelancers with whom I work on things like cover design, um, although not as much anymore. Again, a big part of the process has been I, I have been taking graphic design courses, learning how to design covers, how to create uh, promotional and collateral materials uh, to post on social media. I've been learning how to better utilize my social media to promote my books and the work that I do. You know, honestly, it, it occurs to me, and not for the first time, as I sit here talking about all of this, that also part of what it, – it's been very safe, right, the last couple of years taking classes and learning how to do things. I mean, not entirely safe, learning how to do things that you really don't know how to do at all. It is always a little anxiety-inducing. You always have that, what if I can't learn this? What if I'm not good at this? What if I'm not good at this part of it? What if I'm good at some things, but I'm not good at, at enough things to be successful in doing what I'm trying to do? Uh, and so that can be, and at least for me, that those these are the kinds of thoughts that I get at the, when I'm starting out, learning how to do something that I just don't know how to do at all. And maybe that is the same for some or even all of you listening to this. Um, but by the same token, I have, it's been very contained what I have had to try to do or learn how to do in order to complete a course. So in that sense, it's been very safe. Basically, I've spent the last two years in, in like a little educational cocoon and everything I've been trying to do, I've been doing with training wheels because it's either a book that I've already promoted successfully in the past, albeit with the help of a publisher and in different ways, or a book that I'm very familiar with and I'm, you know, I already have a base of readers for it who can help me get it out there. And now I'm talking not about just creating brand new work from scratch, but in the case of the mystery novel, really doing something just completely outside of my wheelhouse, something that I have not done already. And and in addition to which, you know, marketing it all by myself and and not having a publisher or really anyone to to back me up on that, except what I have been able to learn over the past couple of years in the classes that I have been taking. So it's a little nerve wracking. And I think that probably is part of the reason why I have put off diving into the mystery novel and focused on other things that genuinely have needed to be done in order, again, for my business to be a business and not just me as a writer writing whatever I feel like and throwing it out there and then moving on to the next thing as as some writers get to do. I have elected to do things in arguably a more difficult way, but I think ultimately a more satisfying way in in working independently. So yeah, so so that is the plan. Um, I will say though that I am also as much as I am absolutely scared out of my wits about diving into the mystery novel. I'm also really looking forward to it. I think it's really going to be a lot of fun. And you know, I'll tell you something that that I had forgotten. I can't even believe I forgot it 
But then I remembered as I was starting to dive into creating an outline for the novel, um, back when I was in middle school and high school, I, you know, when I was in middle school in eighth grade, I, I was, I worked on the, um, the yearbook. I was part of the yearbook staff. When I was in high school, I was very, very active in my debate program. Um, and, and we competed against schools throughout, well, throughout all over the country, but certainly throughout South Florida on a regular basis. So there were lots of people. I had lots of friends at other schools, basically. And, and we all knew each other. There was like a whole debate circuit. But anyway, the point being that I used to like to write murder mysteries um where basically like 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 the yearbook editor got killed and it was somebody on the yearbook staff who did it and or you know the same thing like like some high profile debater got murdered by another debater from a different school and and so who did it and and how does that play out and i used to have a lot of fun doing that and i would share it with the people you know i would write it i would put in real people like real people who i knew would be the characters and I would kind of, you know, pass it around while it was in progress and, and people could see how they had been depicted in the book. And we could all, you know, lots of inside jokes and we could all laugh, but it was a lot of fun to do. Um, I'd completely forgotten that I had done that, actually. But it was a lot of fun. And it was, I think, my first real stab at writing that wasn't school writing and that was also like trying to be something like a book. And once, obviously, as an adult, I started writing for real. I got very far away from mysteries. It, it was not even something that occurred to me. And, and truly, I had forgotten that I'd even done that. But what makes it particularly relevant to what I'm working on now is that I am, you know, Homer is going to be the star of the Homer Whodunit Mystery series. And for that reason, I've decided to set it in the late 90s, uh, Homer's youth and his heyday. In a town very much like South Beach, like the South Beach that Homer and I lived in together back in the 90s. And so, of course, a lot of the characters are going to be versions of or, or based, however loosely, on real people who I knew at the time and who were friends of mine. And so I think it, it's going to actually be a lot of fun to to get into that world and and to hang out with these characters. And I'm actually really looking forward to it. And so that I, I think it's good that I made the decision actually to to do it this way because it gives me something to to feel fun and excited about, and and not just the sort of gut clenching terror of why did I tell people I was going to do this thing that very clearly I cannot do. It's sort of like I have the voice of Carrie's mom on a continual loop in my head. Um, so so it's just this constant, you know, they're, they're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. That That's that's what I keep hearing um, when I sit when I sit down and try to work on this novel. So I'm trying to quell the voice of Carrie's mom that lives inside my head. And I believe I will be able to do so successfully. But honestly, the best way to to get rid of that voice, to kill that voice once and for all is just to do it, is to sit down and do this thing that I'm afraid I won't be able to do. Once you do it, you know, you can do it. Then you're not afraid of not being able to do it anymore. So that is my plan for 2024. That's not all I'm hoping to do, but that's a good start. And we will see where the year takes us and how the year unfolds. Um, I do hope that everybody listening to this is so far enjoying a happy, healthy 2024. And I wish you nothing but good health and good fortune in the year ahead. And of course, plenty of time spent with 
this podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for sending in a question and thank you everybody for listening. Uh, Please don't forget to join us again next week for another all new episode. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.